as a black person. I just maybe felt that because, you know, I grew up on a very sort of white working class council estate. My parents happened to own that house, but there was one other black family on our estate and they were also witnesses um, and they were also sort of almost isolated. It, it kind of feels like 2020 speak, you know, mm. that we're all sort of like isolating in our little yeah. bubbles. Um, but this was, you know, the sort of late 80s, early 90s, early to mid 90s. Um, and it was, it was just very, very strange, very strange, you know, my parents in particular you know we weren't allowed to sort of stay up after eight o'clock so we'd go to our rooms like even when i was 16 i was sent to bed at eight o'clock so i didn't watch any tv didn't have a tv in my room didn't have like you know games consoles or anything that like other kids would sort of say were normal and this wasn't even really a jehovah's witness thing i think that was just my parents sort of okay. their attitudes and the fact that they Discipline. were poor and yeah. so couldn't afford certain things for me Hello guys, welcome to another episode of Time to Talk. You're joined by me, your host, Alex Holmes. Um, it's a pleasure to have you guys back here again. Um, as ever, I always enjoy coming to the mic and chatting to you and introducing new guests um, and new ideas to you guys. So, yeah, so this week we have an amazing uh, conversation. It is a new month. Welcome to a new month of episodes. Um, I have Paul Menders as my guest. Um, if you don't know Paul, Paul is the author of an amazing book called Rainbow Milk. Rainbow Milk explores the life of a black man who leaves his Jehovah's Witness family um, um, in the West Midlands and heads down to London where he explores life as a queer man and he explores what that looks like entering into the world of sex work um, being a drama student love um, abuse friendship it is a very, very brilliant representation of queer love, black queer love, and it's so empowering. It's an empowering book. And um, I'm so glad and happy that I got to speak to him um, in 2020 to talk to him about the about his book. And it's an amazing book. It's so well written. And um, we have a conversation today. And we talk about you know, growing up um, in religious families. I mean, my family wasn't particularly religious, but we had the church and our faith, our spirituality also at the centre of our of our being. So, you know, I didn't have it as, you know, hard as uh, Paul had it. But Paul had a an, ex- an experience of growing up that I never would have experienced he grew up a Jehovah's Witness Um, in some senses actually Rainbow Milk is quite autobiographical for Paul Um, but we'll get into that in the in the into the conversation and you can have a listen and let me know what you think but it was an amazing amazing conversation and you know I have these conversations around um, emotional resilience, what it means to be a resilient man, a resilient person, um, mental health, well-being, and he covers all of that 
in this book, he speaks to understanding love as a core value for people and actually understanding that it comes from us. It comes from us innately in order for us to bring it out into the world. And I have to say, he does it exquisitely. It's such a beautifully written book. Um, and we have a, the conversation we have is great. Like, um, you know, he's funny. And he just reminded me of, you know, the fact that, you know, of that, of where our beginnings are. Where we start is not where we're destined to end. We choose our life. We choose whichever paths we want to make. We choose the decisions that we want to make, um, that we want to act on, sorry. And, you know, we go about and we experience the fullness of what life means to us. And, um, you know, he talks about the loneliness of being a young person in the 90s, um, in a Jehovah's Witness family, not being able to go out, not being able to experience or explore um, things that other young people were exploring, music, he talks about all of these things and it's such a great and amazing conversation with just another man who is so empowering and empowered. Um, so yeah, so I want to say thank you to Paul Mendes for joining me on the show today. So yeah, you guys can go and check out his book. I'll put all of the information in the show notes for you. Um, but yeah, I do want to just say thank you for everybody who kind of showed love with regards to Time to Talk, How Men Think About Love, Belonging and Connection, you know, being out on the 1st of April. Uh, you guys are awesome and amazing. Uh, I just, I, I can't, I cannot um express and explain how important um that that converse that not even the conversation how um how important that was for me just to see uh you know the people's reactions to the book arriving and coming um it was great it was great to see um and you know it just means that this show will grow it means that you know the message that i have um to create a world where we can walk out of this you know, of our doors, of our front doors safely, create a world that is safe for women, children, girls in particular, uh, for queer people, for our non-binary humans and siblings, um, for trans people, um, for people of different abilities and classes and races. I just think that we are entering into a time where we are entering into a time where we have to be calling to question all of the things that just don't make sense, that don't make sense to us innately, that don't make sense to us spiritually, and are really messing with our resolve and our resilience and our mental well-being and our emotional well-being. We really need to stand up and say enough, like this is not what I signed up for as a human, I did not sign up for this um, you know I'm a man of many many identities and many complexities and understandings and I have deep empathy and compassion for so many people and things 
Um, and, you know, back in the day, it used to be very hard for me to exist in that space and understand what that was, you know, because in doing so meant that I was not normal. I was not a man who could conform to any of this. And yeah, so getting to a point where I have to become emotionally resilient. So, you know, it feels like I've been training for this moment of when the world is kind of becoming very, very difficult to live in and exist in has become um, quite telling over the past year or so. Um, even leading up to this from 2000 and from 2017, say, um, it's been tricky, it's been hard, it's been a deep spiritual revolution and understanding of self. Um, and I think that's kind of what is being called to question for all of us. So, um, I just want to leave this kind of message with you just to say, you know, you've got this, keep fighting for what is fair, what is right keep fighting for what you feel and know in your heart is love love is not airy fairy it is not this mystical feeling that we kind of um that has been shown to us it's not the fairy godmother arriving when you are down and you know kind of finding your true love and all this different stuff love is hard love is sticky love is gritty and love is down in the trenches. I'm doing this because I have a deep understanding and passion and love for the people um, around me. So, yes, um, let's get on with the show. And this is Time to Talk. And I'm talking to Paul Mendes about his book, Rainbow Milk. Enjoy. 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 Right, welcome, Paul, to Time to Talk. Thank you for joining me. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me. I'm okay. It's been a very, 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 very busy period, and I'm just about to sort of start another very, 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 very busy period, so you probably caught me as a good time. Where I've still got lots of stuff to do, but it's all sort of quite small, sort of fixing, yeah. niggling, editing sort of stuff. So, But mm-hmm. no, I'm all good. Thank you. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. And it's um, similar to you, I'm just writing and just kind of trying to get get work done. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's a bit, it's a it's a much slower day today, which I'm thankful for. I think I'm gonna lie down after this recording. Right. <laughs> uh, so it's um, it's all good on that front. Um, wanted to ask you, do you have a quote today that you brought to the table? Yes, uh, it is. Classes of the intellect have little to do with birth. And that's by Marcel Proust. Classes and of the intellect. Sorry, classes of the intellect. Yeah. Are nothing to do or have little to do with birth. I can't remember the exact wording. Have little to but, do with birth. Okay. Yeah, that's um, a line from somewhere in the sort of huge mass of words that is Proust's novel *In Search of Lost Time*, right. which I read in my mid twenties, and I, you know, I. I'm doing my MA at the moment at Goldsmiths in Black British Literature, but uh, before that, my sort of further education record is pretty poor. Like, I'd started a couple of degrees and sort of quit them mm. all uh, before the first year ended. And I was sort of maybe a little bit down on myself for missing out on the education that I should have been giving myself. 
So when I read that line, it kind of made me realize that, do you know what, it's okay. You know, it doesn't make you thick. It doesn't make you stupid just because you don't have a degree at your age. Keep going. You know, time will tell. And, you know, there may be uh, a more sort of amenable period in your life where it might be easy for you to, to go to university and get the education you deserve. So that's my quote. Yeah, that is an amazing quote, actually. Like, so good I had to ask it again. Um, <laughs> it's, I, I, I love it. I love it because it just, it, it, it means, it looks like it's a, the way I interpret it is, as you say, it's just you can develop a, like through self-education, through kind of like mm. education of life, the things that you've learned that you don't necessarily have to have you know the most prestige education and all of that stuff and and it's it, it, it then gives you that element of freedom to kind of gen- to then think like oh the possibilities are endless because you can kind of you can do whatever and whenever um yeah. but it's interesting with the context in which you put it in it's like you like with with time you know and with the kind of age then mm. you don't have to then restrict yourself to mm. all of that and i think that's something mm. that a lot of us um uh, could could kind of do with remembering a lot of the time, mm. you know. I'm kind, I'm I'm edging towards thirty, and um, it's a uh, I had to unbind myself from that mindset of I have to have everything this done by thirty, this done by this time, um, and it's very very interesting. Yeah. Well, these are all very sort of. Um, like Victorian heteronormative kind of, um, <laughs> you know, things that people put on us that, yeah. you know, you need to um, settle down, you need to sort of find a partner, you need to get married, you need to get a house, you need to have children, you need to have a car, you need to have your job all by a certain age. Well, I'm sorry, but like, you know, I'm a homosexual man <laughs> and I don't follow those heteronormative principles. You know, I, I do things when I feel I'm ready to, ready to. Um, and, you know, I've tried, I've tried to sort of do what, you know, family members or various other sort of, you know, people in charge when you're younger want you to do. You, you try to be that person, but, you know, you know within yourself whether it works or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I've had to sort of, you know, learn that the hard way. Um, mm-hmm. But hopefully now I'm sort of on, on the path that I've chosen for myself. Yeah, fantastic. So before we get into the main bulk of the show, which is um, discussing your debut novel, Rainbow Milk, beautiful book, as I was saying to you just before we started recording. So we're going to get into that. What's your background? So I'm from... The West Midlands. I live in London now and have done for about 16 years. But I grew up in the West Midlands in a small area called the Black Country. So between the borders of Dudley, Wolverhampton and West Bromwich, which was sort of the centre of British industry and manufacturing for a good sort of couple of centuries and was sort of broken down when Margaret Thatcher came to power. (laughs) So I grew up in a sort of very impoverished area that sort of lost its sort of reason to be. And you look at that area now and, you know, it voted overwhelmingly in favour of Brexit. It's sort of so run down and you kind of think, well, you know, what do you expect is going to happen now? What, mm. what, why did you vote for Brexit? What, what do you think is going to improve in your situation? Because I think the problem is that, you know, the, the manufacturing side of things has been taken away, but the people haven't necessarily, as, as a community, found anything to replace it mm. for themselves. 
So I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness. My parents raised me in that religion. So I sort of always had, you know, Bible study supplementing my secular education. But also the area I grew up in was very sort of white, working class, the BNP, British National Party, for any listeners who don't know, were a big stronghold. Uh, the, the Sandwall, the borough that I grew up in, was a big stronghold for the BNP. Mm. So growing up, I had all of these sort of intersections around me of nothing being simple, everything being quite complex. And, you know, I'm the eldest of four children, so I was probably expected to sort of be a good influence. And I was up to a point Mm. um, because I was very devout as a witness and very much looked forward to, you know, the paradise earth after Armageddon that they preach. And, you know, I was a full-time preacher. I gave talks from the platform to the congregation from about the age of nine. And, but then I was disfellowshipped at 17 so completely cut off from um, the congregation and from who I've, you know, from everyone I had sort of grown up with, cast out into a world in which I had sort of never learned how to uh, to live, because you're not supposed to associate with non-Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh wow! Um, yeah. So you know, notwithstanding the fact that you have to go to school, etc. So yeah, at seventeen. You know, realizing you know I'd never sort of had to make friends before. It was it was a very sort of strange age to feel exiled. Um, and I guess fast forward to the age of twenty two, I've moved to London. I'm, I'm studying acting mm. at an unaccredited method school. So it was a certificate in acting. It was it wasn't a degree, so I couldn't get a student loan. And I fell upon sex work as a way of paying my way. And after a sexual assault. I really sort of had to think, like, okay, so five years ago I was baptised, you know, a devout witness, and now Mm. look at me, what's happened? Mm. And it was a need to sort of chart that trajectory Mm. to see where I might be going even and to create a future for myself. It's the reason why I started writing. So Rainbow Milk is basically it's come about from maybe 15 years of that kind of life writing of that sort of self searching life writing which when i presented it to charmaine lovegrove back in 2017 she and her colleague dominic wakeford challenged me to write it as a novel and to sort of yeah to to uh come up with ways to distance myself from Wonder. the subject matters and characters I was working with because mm. it's it's tough subject matter and it's sort of experiential and when you're writing about it especially you know to a deadline you're opening up old wounds and mm. that's not the way to go necessarily to sort of conserve your mental health mm. so but the sort of the more I sort of got into the craft of fiction writing the greater distance I was able to sort of put between myself and my sort of de facto avatar, Jesse, in order to find a way to write about the things that I went through, but from completely sort of dispassionate perspective. Mm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that I probably answered about 10 questions. It, 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 <laughs> you know, it, it, it makes my job easy. <laughs> um, I wanted to go back and just actually kind of, and just... Because you've said so many just amazing things there, I had to just kind of pinpoint like little bits. So, you know, growing up in the black country, and I remember reading the book, and um, it must have been this really weird legacy of having to explain where you were from and explain what the black country was, and then and then attributing it uh, attributing it to Lenny Henry and 
all of these different things. And I know there's a mm. bit in the book where Jesse's explaining where he's from and then, you know, you're ignorant. And it's like the way you kind of kind of framed it is like, um, oh, so where's that then? And, oh, yeah, Lenny, you know, like Lenny Henry. And you're like, oh, yeah. And it's that kind of understanding. But when you kind of pinpointed um, just what it was like growing up in that in that space, I would like to just get a bit more of a, a rounded context of, you know, being Jehovah's Witness and being, uh, I want to say, Caribbean. Yeah, Afro-Caribbean, yeah. Afro-Caribbean mm. descent and being in the black country because, mm. and, and you said, not having to associate yourself with so many, with other people outside of, outside of being a witness. Mm. What was that experience like? Was it very, how, was it very detaching? Did you feel a sense of belonging? What was that like? Uh, lonely is the first word that comes to mind. Very isolating. I wasn't allowed out to play with friends from school after school or anything. So I, I was just up in my room, not even necessarily reading, you know, studying perhaps Bible-based literature uh, published by the witnesses. And I guess, you know, the sort of the strengths of the strength of my beliefs came from just the sheer amount of hours I spent in my room, like having to read the Watchtower and Awake magazines and mm. having to prepare talks, you know, Bible readings and stuff like that when, you know, other kids would have been know, out playing football or whatever. I was, yeah, I just felt very sort of isolated from from my peers socially, but also as a black person. I just maybe felt that because, you know, I grew up on a very sort of white working class council estate. My parents happened to own that house, but mm. there was one other black family on our estate and they were also witnesses um, and they were also sort of almost isolated it, it kind of feels like 2020 speak you know mm. that we're all sort of like isolation but this was you know the sort of late 80s early 90s early to mid 90s um mm. and it was it was just very very strange very strange you know my parents in particular you know, we weren't allowed to sort of stay up after eight o'clock, so we'd go to our rooms. Like, even when I was 16, I was sent to bed at eight o'clock. So I okay. didn't watch any TV, didn't okay. have a TV in my room, didn't have, like, you know, games consoles or anything mm. that, like, other kids would sort of say were normal. And this wasn't even really a Jehovah's Witness thing. I think that was just my parents' sort of okay. their attitudes and the fact that they Discipline. were poor and yeah. so couldn't afford certain things for me and I think they they held it against me that they thought that I held it against them that they weren't rich enough to provide certain things for okay. me so okay. we always had a very sort of attritional relationship given also the fact that I was very bright and sort of found ad- academic education very easy in the way that they probably didn't and it's only now that I'm older that I kind of realize what they must have gone through Mm. When they were my age, going to schools again in predominantly white working class areas in the you know in the sixties and seventies, when you know the black and white minstrel show was still on TV Absolutely, and people yeah. still you know had gollywogs in their house mm. and like you could buy gollywogs in 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 any toy shop and mm. you know the sus laws being in and you know Enoch Powell you know yeah. this is the black country. You know, this is where I grew up. I grew up in 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 the area that Enoch Powell was MP when he mm. made the Rivers of Blood speech. My parents were growing up in that area as well. Okay. So you know, you know, since then I've also learned about you know the 
the way institutional racism was in schools back then, much mm. worse than what I even had, where black children were sort of um, systematically sent to special schools for the educationally subnormal. Not because they were less bright or less able than white students, it just sort of, it was just, you know, the way, the way schools and education authorities went about sort of dealing Absolutely. with diversity in classes. So mm. there's, a, there's a real sort of like generational thing there that I'm yeah. still unpacking and that, you know, is, is that needs to be sort of part of the conversation more, I think. Yeah, for real. I wanted to speak about a bit more about Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, I think that a lot of the conversations I have on this show are teachable moments and I'm not sure many people know about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. We know culturally they not like, you know, knocking on people's doors, uh, having conversations and then, you know, people not always letting them in and then them going on about their days, you know what I mean? And it's uh, it's a conversation to to be had, but I've never actually had a conversation with a Jehovah, with somebody who was was in Jehovah's Witness. So can you just explain what what kind of, what the, the key kind of principles are um, and the, the elements that come with it? Sure. So Jehovah's Witnesses are a denomination of, I suppose, Protestantism founded in the mid-19th century uh, in Pennsylvania in the US by someone called Charles Taze Russell, who I forget his background but he was sort of high up within another sort of denomination and then decided to branch off and start his own uh, organisation. And they believe in the Bible literally. So they believe in creation, they believe in Adam and Eve. They sort of chart the history of humankind to being around 6,000 years. They don't believe in dinosaurs or evolution or anything like that. They say that dinosaurs, well, this is what my elders, etc., told me when I was growing up because I would sort of you know, go to a science class at school and be like, oh, but like dinosaurs aren't mentioned in the Bible. And they're like, well, actually, Paul, it's because dinosaur fossils, etc., are a fabrication by world governments to discredit God and creation. So let's just turn to the scripture and that's like, you know, that will show us mm. exactly what God did. And let's sort of take me to Genesis chapter one and read the first seven verses. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. So, I mean, do you know what? Whatever. I mean, people believe what they believe, right? But... The actual sort of day-to-day, let me just sort of also say that they believe that, I think they have this brochure that says millions now living will never die. And they sort of count themselves within this group of people who will, after Armageddon and God has cleared away all sort of evil from the planet, will survive to turn the earth back into the paradise that God sort of intended it to be. And everyone else who has therefore rebuked God or Jehovah will die forever and there'll be no more sort of evil etc. There's no heaven or hell as far as they're mm. concerned. They don't celebrate birthdays or Christmas and they believe that Jesus died on a stake rather than a cross. So it's kind of like almost anything to sort of distinguish themselves from oh, other Christian denominations. Why they don't, don't celebrate, celebrate Easter either. Why don't celebrate birthdays or Christmas? Uh, well, according to them, there's no record in the Bible of Jesus celebrating his birthday. And also, you know, John the Baptist was beheaded on, uh, was it, Her- no, what's his name? I can't even remember my Bible people, but someone's birthday, King, someone's birthday. Was it Herod? King Herod, King Herod. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure one of your listeners will call up and be Yo. like, dude, like, get your Christianity <laughs> right. Get your okay. Bible right. 
Okay, interesting. Um, but anyway, they have all of these beliefs, and you know, if you sort of stick to those beliefs, mm. it's fine. You know,、mm. they are an incredibly sort of multicultural and loving group of people who really look after each other. It's just that when you step out of that, when you sort of have any kind of individual thought, they really pounce on you and、mm. try to cancel you back into what they. Believe you should be thinking. It's not a place to be if you're a feminist or a gay person, a queer person, because those things are anathema to them. Women don't have any roles within the congregation. They're not allowed to wear trousers on the platform. They're not allowed to preach directly to the congregation. And if you're gay, just forget it. So yeah, once I left, once I'd left the organisation, it took me sort of four. Years to come out, and even then, I was convinced that you know my dad would sort of chase me down and kill me.、Oh, so I、yeah. was absolutely prepared to never sort of see my family again. And I guess my parents and I still sort of still living with that legacy of like you know are we or aren't we? But I mean, with the with the novel, I didn't want to write a primer of Jehovah's Witnesses. I just wanted、yeah. to sort of say just enough. Yeah, yeah. Because the thing is, what I wanted to like the way that I saw it because you start the story. Forgive me, I've forgotten names now. I was end up forgetting characters. With Norman, but he was Norman, and you know he came over to to the UK, and that was a very beautiful kind of like introduction to just the family itself. And and I've always questioned because you know my understanding of when West Indians came over was very much you know Pentecostal, New Testament Church of God, and then like I was aware of some Jehovah's Witnesses, but they, it was just like they were over there sort of thing. So how did how did Uh, people become like Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witnesses. Was it sort of a like? Because I'm imagining, you know, West Midlands, and then you know, black community is quite prevalent in the West Midlands. And、uh, when, when I think of the, when I think of Jehovah's Witnesses, actually, it's, it's a very specific group of like a group specific de- denomination. So how would one join that? In a sense, it's just it, I'm trying to seek that up in my mind with regards to what I've experienced. Well, you know, the preaching from door to door is what Jehovah's Witnesses are sort of best known for, and、mm-hmm. perhaps how I should have opened the answer to your previous question. That's what they—that's what they do, and that's what I did.、Uh, you know, all through summer holidays and weekends and stuff.、Mm-hmm. Whenever I wasn't at school, I'd be sort of out preaching from door to door. And my grandmother,、uh, my paternal grandmother, I think she was going through some personal issues in、mm-hmm. the early nineteen seventies, late sixties, early seventies, and on a particularly sort of Trying day, witnesses knocked on her door. She had my grandmother had a baby daughter who wouldn't stop crying, and it was two women who had knocked on her door, one white, one black,、mm-hmm. which, in its own way, was kind of impressive to her because she's just like, wow, like you know, these two women are sort of equals, and they both believe in the same thing, and like you just never see black and white women at that time sort of just. Sort of have you know being on a level with each other.、Mm. Like, so these women knocked on her door. My grandmother answered it. The baby's screaming. One of them takes the baby and sort of calms her and sort of you know, while the other sort of you know sees to my grandmother and、mm. you know sits her down, makes her a cup of tea. And my grandmother's like, you know,、oh, <laughs> what are these two women doing in my house? Like,、mm. I don't even know their names, and yet、yeah. they're sort of you know so loving and 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 kind and generous and. Helping, and what they showed her was that she could be part of a much bigger community. That she could be part of a sort of extended family, where you know, sisters in the congregation would look after her children, and you know, while she did Bible studies or went while she went to work, etc. And they just really sort of gave my grandmother structure to her life, where. Before she was facing so many sort of difficulties, and I think that's kind of you know an amazing thing about that organisation that. 
you know, up to a point, I sort of think it's slightly exploitative as well because they do sort of, you know, they go, they go around locations where people are, you know, socio- socioeconomically disadvantaged mm. uh, because they know that people in in these areas will be more receptive to to their message of hope, not necessarily having anything to live for in this world. They're like, okay, well, you know, maybe. Another thing I should say about the witnesses is they believe in a resurrection. So they don't believe in heaven or hell. They believe that when you die, you die. But after Armageddon, there'll be this opportunity of a resurrection. Mm. So if you kept the faith until you die, you'd be resurrected into this paradise earth, etc. And that sort of, you know, shuts everyone up, really, when they have doubts about it. Because, you know, even if you die in this world, you will still have this hope of living forever. And that's what sort of people really cling on to and i guess yeah my grandmother was part of a huge influx into the organization up until 1975 when the witnesses predicted that armageddon would happen so in the couple of years before that you know people were leaving their witnesses were leaving their jobs selling their houses living in their cars or in caravans and preaching full-time you know walking around with a boards advertising armageddon happening and my grandmother and my dad were part of that sort of cohort but then when 1975 sort of came and went without incident, a lot of the youth left the organisation, as did my dad. And he, in that period, met my mother. I was born, they got married, and then they decided to raise me, actually, as a witness. And so my dad went back to the organisation. OK, OK. So then uh, then you, you know, time went on, you know, you grew up growing into yourself and whatnot, and you got disfellowed. And... Yeah, I love like, and for those listening, like it's it's so it's quite parallel to what was happening, as you know, as Paul said, in regards to what was going on in, in Rainbow Milk, and, and it's a very interesting story, and, and like my heart went out to Jesse when he this fellow because I could because I I listened to it on audiobook and like, I love the theatrical nature of, of novels in in audiobook, which Paul reads by the way and has many different accents in the, in the thing and like it's so skillful. This is like. I could I could feel the tension everywhere like, in that in that in that scene. And I was like, oh my god, what's going on? It's like, is he going to be okay? Like, are they going to attack him? What's going on? Um, yeah, you have to read it to find out what happens there. But you get this fellowed, and it's like this kind of shunning, and this you it's like you must leave, and you must like no longer be associated with us or anybody within. It's not even like you can coexist. With, with 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 them and I don't know like how did that feel for you and your family and then what made you want to go to London and not Manchester so mm. down to London it's it's you know it's the classic sort of you know it's like the Lion King or something you know Simba being kicked out of the, the running, jungle running yeah. away from the Pride Lands <laughs> exactly so I I should start by saying that my personal story was different from Jess's that was where I really sort of enjoyed looking at the story from the outside. And, you know, the character of Graham, Jesse's stepfather, that's a fictional character. You know, he's not... You know, my my dad's black. And my sort of disfellowshipping was very, very, very different. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, basically kicked out for lying about where I'd been one night. I'd been out getting drunk, and I didn't want my parents to find out where I was, so I sort of asked a sister in the congregation to cover for my whereabouts, and she sort of said, oh, well, you know, well, she actually told an elder rather than saying this to me. She said, you know, Paul's asked me to lie for him. 
And so I had the elders at my house and it just became this sort of big inquest, which my parents then had to say something about. And so it was kind of quite, again, quite sort of traumatic for me as a 17-year-old, sort of because, you know, being a young black man as well, like being a black teenager, uh, it doesn't matter sometimes, like, how sort of clever you are, how good you are at school, how sort of, you know, how sort of exemplary you are as a young member of the congregation. The minute you show another side to yourself, which might be considered to be like, you know, in line with stereotypes of what young black men are like, you're, you know, none of the previous matters, you know, you're suddenly this black kid that people have to deal with and discipline. And, you know, black kids do, you know, as we've seen time and time and time again, black kids get punished overproportionately for misdemeanors or whatever they've done than the equivalent white peers. So at the time, I just had to sort of live with that. I didn't have that knowledge. And it was only really when I read James Baldwin, like, later on in life, particularly his nonfiction, that I sort of realised, you know, that I was black. Combining that with Franz Fanon, who Mm. says, you know, if you're in a room full of white people, you think of yourself as being white. You know, it's only when someone sort of tells you that you're black or sort of someone holds up a mirror to you that you realise that you're different. Mm. And that's how it was for me growing up as a witness in this very sort of predominantly white working class area with a predominantly white congregation, you know, being this sort of golden child who was, you know, preaching from the Kingdom Hall platform all the time. You know, I didn't see myself as being black. It's only when I was being punished for something that I realised my blackness was the reason why I was being punished. So it was it a was very sort of difficult situation to be in, uh, one that created a lot of loneliness and one that sort of made me not want to ever go back to it because yeah. if I could be treated that way, then I'm not going to go back to do that. Yeah. And I'd started meeting people who treated me just like a normal human being and treated me decently in, in a balanced way who happen not to be Jehovah's Witnesses. And I'm like, oh, you're supposed to die at Armageddon, but you're, like, really nice. So <laughs> I don't know what's going on. And I guess I don't know why I moved to London, really. I, I knew that I I loved... You know, it's interesting to use the word theatrical. I think I've always been quite a theatrical person. And, you know, it was my ambition sort of underlying, I suppose, to to and to one day be an actor or to mm. become an actor. So I realised that London would be the only place for that. However, it took me five years to make that decision and to make that move. Mm. And in the meantime, you know, I went, I I lived in Kent and I started an engineering degree, quit that. And I was living with a group of photography students at the same college. And one of them put me on to James Baldwin. And so I started reading Mm. and writing little bits. I started a novel, which I sent to a publisher, which was returned to me. And I thought, you know what, sod this, I'm never going to write again. And... Yeah, I just kind of moved to London at the age of 22 after coming out and the first guy I met on the gay scene back in Birmingham said, you should do acting training, you should become an actor. And that's why I moved to London. Amazing. And it's funny what you said about just being in, like, with those photographers and then handing you the book about Baldwin and then that kind of, like, spurred you on that kind of... Like, just reading about experiences and getting that going because it's it's very similar to a scene in in the book and i wanted to ask you just really randomly like mendez <laughs> like, where's this here where's that from slavery <laughs> <laughs> i always find are you um you jamaican or where are you yeah. from? You're Jamaican. Yeah. I always, I always yeah. find I always find Jamaican surnames quite quite interesting. You know, we have there's quite a few Lopez's, there's a few Chung's. Yeah, you know. I mean Jamaica's such a sort of cosmopolitan 
country. It's a huge sort of influence from China, from Syria, from, you know, various other sort of very unexpected places. And, you know, obviously Jamaica was... Uh, I mean, readers won't see my sort of inverted commas fingers, but discovered by the Spanish okay. in yeah. the 16th century. And it was they who started to bring African slaves on ships yeah. on a much smaller scale than the English later did and obviously named these slaves after themselves. The island itself was called Chemaka, which means Island of the Sun. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, the land, land of wood and water as well, isn't it? There's like so many. Oh, yeah, I think yeah. you're right about yeah. that, actually. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so they then became um, part of the maroon, maroon community when um, the English sort of um, won Spain, uh, mm. Jamaica from Spain in, in, in a war in 1665 mm. and started bringing African slaves over in much sort of more industrial mm. numbers. Um, but yeah, the surnames survive and some of the sort of uh, names of settlements such as um, Ocho Rios and, you know, um, Spanish Town and various other influences remain. Mm. Um, but I mean, I don't really know anything about my um, family history, it's all very sort of muddled and sort of yeah, full it's of... very difficult, it's very difficult, isn't it? Um, to kind of, sometimes you get you get to your grandparents and then that's when it starts to get a bit confusing yes, exactly. because they yeah. called their auntie mum and then they called their yeah. dad who was their brother, I just don't know. Sometimes it's well, just better off without the headache. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's where fiction comes in, I think. Yes. Um, but even you know if you were able to sort of trace your family roots back to the sort of emancipation era it was only in 1841 in that census where planters were obliged to name their slaves mm. before that well give them surnames indeed mm. before that they're only they were only obliged by law to to name well to name give them the first name i think and to record their age and gender that was mm. it so you know records would be very, very, very difficult to find apart from anecdotally mm. um, as to, to anyone's sort of long-term history. And, you know, so I wouldn't be able to sort of find out necessarily yeah. uh, where the Spanish connection yeah, comes in. It might just be through marriage, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to kind of just, you know, like you've got such an illustrious kind of like life and I don't even know where to begin but uh, where, where, to call, where, where to go to where to go to next I mean I definitely want to speak to you about your writing about the Black British writing monsters but we'll probably get to that but the transition from all your degrees to drama obviously and then by then funding that with sex work like what what was oh, I thinking? What, no, 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 what you're thinking <laughs> because what, what you're thinking because like you know money talks, you know what I mean, and if it's the yeah. easiest way to get it, then you're just gonna do it. But like going through that, like how how were you? I think I was just very cocky and very confident, and you know I was probably quite attractive and you know 22 years old and sort of slim and sort of wide-eyed and I guess corruptible I mean you know I didn't really sort of have any pride in that period yeah. I mean I, I wouldn't sort of deny it if anyone asked you know this is 
my life. You know, this is what I've done. I'm yeah. proud of that. Yeah. But, you know, I wouldn't encourage anyone to sort of follow that path. Even though the reason why I was really able to allow myself to become a sex worker was so that I could do something psychologically to myself that didn't necessarily break the law, mm. but that would free me up from this sort of very strict Christian doctrine that I had grown up with and that I knew didn't make sense for, for the real world that I, as I saw it. So I just really just had to divest myself, disembarrass myself of... of 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 this kind of very sort of judgmental mentality yeah, that I had, out of shame, move out of shame, and kind of like yeah, step into perhaps a into in, perhaps into a new shame, but uh, mm-hmm. I I would at least be able to sort of see a middle path, you know, that I wasn't just being moralistic, but knew sort of you know what other people's lives might have been like, you know, yeah. and that I wasn't just you know that I wasn't so judgmental anymore uh, and and unable to live in this world, but I mm. kind of. You know, I knew that it wasn't, I, I must have known that it wasn't sort of sustainable in the long term, even though I did do some sort of sex work for over a decade on and off. So because it was just always available to me and I met really actually quite nice people who mm. were emotionally needy as well as as much as I was, I suppose. But without it sort of, you know, progressing into into an actual relationship, we were mm. just able to sort of look after each other in that way. Yeah. What does that, what does that say about kind of, what does that say about men who and, and their emotions then? Because it's the intimacy that you said that they were needing. That they were needing, or was it? I think shame is an interesting word, and you yeah. know, I think it has several purposes in this discussion. I think sort of most at the forefront is the idea that some men particularly of the generation or two before I was born, just grew up in a very sort of difficult society, one that wasn't amenable to their what they would see as their natural desires. Uh, I've heard someone say recently that masculinity is a cage, and I think that's absolutely true. Men have to act or behave a certain way. It doesn't matter who you are inside or what you do sort of in secret, but in public you have to be a certain way in order to sort of be part of this kind of capitalist machine, mm-hmm. in order to be successful in that sort of, you know, economic kind of way that, you know, is the be-all and end-all for so many people. And, you know, homosexuality doesn't necessarily fit in with that. You know, gender diversity doesn't fit in with that necessarily. And so people have to live a secret life. Like one of my clients, you know, very wealthy, successful, has never married, has never sort of been in a relationship, thinks his family doesn't suspect of him as being gay. You know, I was, he was my client, I suppose, for like over a decade. And there were times where I sort of suggested, well, look, you know, we've been seeing each other for this long. Like, why don't we just sort of, you know be in a relationship and he's just like oh no you know I couldn't you know what would happen if you know my brother came round or something and Mm. wanted to sort of come to I'd have to send you out and etc so you know some people just can't even in the 21st century can't accept their truth and that's sort of where I came in as a sex worker because I guess with my own shame, I was able to understand theirs and sort of empathise and sort of meet them halfway. But yeah, I don't know, it's very complex and it's something yeah. I'm probably still unpacking myself. Yeah, yeah. So, Rainbow Milk was born. I want to ask you about um, the writing now, just so we can move around that to 
the Black British Writing Emmy and or Black British Literature. I've, um, I'm forgetting what the specific masters is called. Uh, uh, yeah, it's just changed to the latter. It's just been renamed to Black, Black British Literature. Like, yeah. So, what's that? Do, what is that masters like? And uh, do you recommend? Absolutely recommend it. I mean, one of the sort of issues I have had personally growing up, and you know, especially as I get older, one of my sources of shame even is uh, the lack of reading of of black authors, um, especially black British authors. The lack of knowledge about my history. You know, we didn't get taught black British history in schools, of course. I didn't sort of have access to the Saturday supplementary school scene either. And my parents weren't necessarily interested in telling me about black history or about even our own family history. So it wasn't really until... I sort of turned 30 and I started reading, you know, authors like Andrew Levy and books like Small Island and The Lonely Londoners by Sam Selvin that I realised that my grandparents were part of a generation of people who moved here in the 1940s to 60s from Jamaica and that I, you know, that I realised the reasons behind their moving here. Because every time I'd ask my grandparents a question like that or, you know, on that subject, they just fogged me off. They weren't interested in the past they were like, we brought you here so that you could have a better life. Now have that better life and stop asking questions. That was their attitude. So it was with reading and with uh, reading black British authors that I was able to sort of piece together the history. And, you know, the, the opening of Rainbow Milk, Norman's story set in 1959, yeah. is, I guess, a culmination of a stage of my reading and my sort of engagement with that history. But, you know, the history, the black British history is so much broader than that. And it's only really, again, since I started this MA last year, that I've been reading, you know, books by David Olusoga about British, Black British history and mm. Peter Fryer, and, you know, reading actual texts by Olado Equiano and Mary Prince and Ignatius Sancho, mm. you know, people who, Black people who lived in the UK in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, that I realised that Black history is so much older, reading even Bernadine Evaristo's The Emperor's Babe, which is set in London or Londinium in in 2, 211 AD, that there were black people living in the UK, even in Roman times. You know, we're, we're sort of taught that black history is something that's 70 years old. And in terms of my family history, it is only 70 <laughs> years old, but it's a much broader scene. Yeah. And it's very important to read that through the voices of black people who have gone through perhaps the same thing as I've done mm. and needed to go into the research, needed to go into the archives and into the libraries to, in order to put together, you know, to, to, to excavate lives and to sort of give people names and, and faces and jobs and sort of, you know, all of the other sort of aspects of humanity that we value in literature in order to show us that we belong here and yeah. that we belong generally. And that's what the MA is giving me and, and continues to. And I'm sure everyone who enrolls on the MA will say something different. Yeah. But I think that's what we all, all have in common. Access to black history through black voices. And that's very important for us. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I love the fact that it's become, a, become something that I want to say is studyable. Like people mm. can actually go out and be very specific with the kind of writing they want to study and the literature they want to study, mm. and it covers such a breadth of a breadth of history and a breadth mm. of culture and a breadth of impact in this country. And yeah, so many people tend to forget like all of mm. these writers and um, think that 
I'm happy that we're moving out and away from this not necessarily understanding or this kind of this this um, assumption that there aren't any writers out there, there aren't any stories out there. There I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous that people say these kinds of things. It's just so lazy. It's just because they personally haven't sort of done the work themselves that they they then sort of, you know, spread this rumour that there are no black writers. You know, I've been reading a book that I'm reviewing, which I won't talk about necessarily but uh, because I'm reviewing it, but it's um, a, a history of black and Asian British writing. And, you know, there's a stark line in it that says that there were 70 novels published by the Windrush generation between 1948 and 1970. I'm like, where are they? Like, why aren't they in print? Yeah. Like, why haven't I I read them? You know, Mm. I'm reading some of them as part of my syllabus, you know, books like The Emigrants by George Lamming and, you know, the works of Beryl Gilroy and E.R. Braithwaite. But even before the start of my MA, I'd never even heard of these people. And that's a shame. You know, these are people who, you know, they're my heritage. Mm. You know, at school, you know, I'm very grateful for the school curriculum and, you know, the fact that we read stuff like The Great Gatsby and Othello and Tess the D'Urbervilles and Of Mice mm. and Men, etc. I'm very grateful for all of that. I wouldn't want to have not read those books. But I did not read a single book by a black author. Mm. A yeah. single one. Growing mm. up. So for me, like, I just didn't know that black writers existed. Mm. You know, the first book that I read by uh, a black author was Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone when I was 20 years old. Wow. You know, and again, James Baldwin is African-American. And Mm. while I absolutely value and love him, that is not my experience, you know. So, you know, the education system really needs to buck its ideas up. But I'm just glad that finally, and it's only been, you know, since 2015, uh, that this MA is available. But I'm just so glad that it's here. And I Mm. really, really wish more people would take it seriously and, and, and study it because, you know, it just makes so much difference to your life to know who you are and Mm. from whence you came as, as again, Baldwin said. Amazing. Amazing. So I just wanted to ask, I'm just some round, round up questions. How do you feel about religion now? Just one more point on the previous question as well. The MA is very, very intersectional. Intersectional. So, you know, you've got narratives from, you know, uh, Welsh people of colour, from Scottish people Ooh. of colour, from queer people of colour, from... Is it only you know, fiction? F- no. Uh, well, I mean, it covers novels, plays and poetry, okay. mainly. But there are some texts, non-fiction as well. There's a brilliant book by Hazel V. Carby called Imperial Intimacies, A Tale of Two Islands, where Hazel V. Carby is a professor of African-American and American studies at Yale University. She's British. She was born here in 1948 to a Jamaican father and a Welsh mother. So is a mixed race. And so she starts her story with the idea of like the where are you from question, which Mm. has been asked of her all of her, all her life and has sort of blown that up in order to trace her family history back on both sides through to sort of 18th century Wales and the West Country of England, but also to 18th century Jamaica and mm. the sort of the English slaver that she is descended from and, and whose surname she still has. Mm. Uh, and it's an absolutely fascinating book and an, an amazing sort of resource in terms of inspiring us how to sort of go back through our own histories mm. to find out who we are and find our heritage. What, which, what was her name? You know, Hazel V. Carby. 
C-A-R-B-Y. Imperial Intimacies, A Tale of Two Islands. Yeah, you know, I suppose all of us who are descended from Caribbean countries or, or have Caribbean heritage, we will have British ancestry or, you know, or European ancestry at some point in the story. If you're Jamaican, if you're from Barbados, etc., you will have some British ancestry. You know, you will be able to trace back to a British. And that sort of gives you a place in England where they came from, yeah. you know, just to call an, an, an ancestral home. Yeah. And so it's very fascinating. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm far from being able to do that. But anyway, yeah. so I've now forgotten your question that you the asked. Question I asked. The question I asked was, how do you feel about religion now? Right. I appreciate other people's need for uh, something that's not immediately of the real world. Mm-hmm. Because, and I think especially of black people when I say this, the way black people need God and need Christianity, uh, for example. If there's no God, then there's really only white men and that can be an absolutely unbearable thought because of the way white men sometimes and very often actually treat black people and have done for centuries of course so in that sense i i totally understand that people need to sort of go above white men to god and so that we are all accountable to to someone else rather than just us being accountable to white men but me personally i don't need religion in my life. I don't know why that is in particular, but especially given the, the the upbringing I've had, I think I've just sort of come to that place where I'm, I know why I'm alive. I know what I'm doing. I know what my, I know what I want my future to be at least. And I don't, I just don't need this idea of, you know, it doesn't matter what you do in this world or it doesn't matter what happens in this world. It's the next world you need to think of. I just don't need that because I'm doing stuff in this world and I'm making something of my life and self-actualizing myself. And I think religious faith is sort of, a, you know, anathema to that, really. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. Needs more thought. And you have the time. Exactly. We are, we are consistently in flux. Mm. You know, so. Exactly. I mean, maybe I won't think about it anymore. You know, I just don't. Yeah. I just don't think about it, really. Yeah. Okay, and the final question I have is, are you optimistic about what is to come? (laughs) Wow. Am I optimistic about what is to come? Well, (laughs) nobody knows what is to come. I I guess, (laughs) yeah, I mean... You know, we're going through a pandemic. We're going through a second wave of a pandemic. We don't know yet whether the second wave is going to be worse than the first. It looks like it probably will be because it's winter. You know, it'll be mixed up with, you know, this year's flu. I think British people guess because of their sense of liberty and of uh, of freedom don't necessarily want to follow rules. And I think, you know, Boris Johnson said something like that, but in... A sort of assault, uh, a sort of implied assault against Italian and German people who are much sort of suffering much less of a second wave or not mm. a second wave at all, just, you know, basically suppressing the, the virus. And he's like, well, we had Churchill, you had Mussolini. So, you know, that therefore we are 
more free. And so oh, wow. that's why we've got a second wave. I mean, it's just absolute rubbish. But there is something in that. I think, you know, people don't want to wear masks and people don't want to sort of fall into line and sort of follow the rules. They're too scared of their sort of liberties being compromised. Mm. And so we've got a situation where we can't control the virus. We don't know what's going to happen. And then we've got Brexit to contend with as well. With a oh, broken yeah. Everybody country. Everybody forgets about Brexit. Everybody forgets about Brexit. That's happening in three months. So, <laughs> you know, we are not prepared. We weren't going to be prepared even before the pandemic started. So, yeah. you know, we are we are scattered. We are scattered mm. in this country. And I don't have... In the short term, I'm not optimistic at all for the country itself. I'm optimistic for myself. Mm. Because I can just stay in my yard and carry on writing and doing Zooms with people like you, and it's fine, you know. But as a nation, I just really think, you know, Britain has never suffered a humiliation on the global stage really before in its entire history. And this may actually be it. And it might be necessary to go through that in order for us to sort of come out on the other end with a bit of humility and Mm. a little bit of of a sense of what it is to live in the 21st century and not to, you know, I think the whole Brexit thing is based entirely on nostalgia mm. for for a monocultural Britain in which everything was supposedly fine and dandy. You know, those memories are always going to be rose-tinted. Mm. And we need to realise that that's not what life is like on planet Earth in the 21st century. We're not going to go back to that. Yeah. If you want to go back to that, go back to that and you'll soon suffer. Because that is not what the world is like anymore. So perhaps we do need to just go through the worst in order to come out of it stronger as a nation. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Paul Mendes. Thank you for having me. No worries. Where can people find you if you want them to find you? Well, I came off social media. (laughs) Don't blame Um, you. Don't blame me. I just sort of felt like it's kind of the opposite of being a novelist you know as a novelist you need to be sort of you need a longer view you need to be sort of like distanced from things that are happening every day and right now like every day like the sun news item or three that's just so triggering that it just really sort of blows me off course and i just don't want to be sort of got at like that i want to have my time and space zadie smith said something really interesting a couple of years ago that not being on social media gives her the right and the opportunity to be wrong and to not sort of be jumped on by everyone and sort of cancelled because Mm. you know because of an opinion that she may or may not be in the process of evolving on any particular subject and I sort of really I really believe in that and I just sort of feel like you know I started thinking in social media rather than thinking in my own way you know everything every thought that I have I'm sort of automatically trying to package into a tweet or you know, every everything I see, I'm like, how can I frame this for Instagram? And it's just so immediate and so now. And again, as a novelist, I need to sort of break free from that. So I came off social media. So like, that's a very long way of saying you can't follow me anywhere. But you just have to wait for my next book. Buy the, <laughs> buy the book, guys. Buy the book. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Catch you guys next week. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the episode. I really appreciate you all for taking the time to actually listen. Um, A huge shout out to Ryan Nile over at Pure Creation Media, a good friend of mine and just an amazing producer and support in my life. Thank you for producing the show. 
I want to say thank you to the publishers over at Welbeck for publishing Time to Talk, How Men Think About Love, Belonging, Connection. The link is in the description if you are so interested in buying my debut book. And I want to say thank you to all of you guys who have made it to this point of the recording. Um, And I want to say, you know, go out, rate, review and subscribe. Share with among your friends. Tell people about it. It makes no sense to keep this all to yourself. Go out, share, spread the word. This is the place to be for compassionate and empowered conversations. Thank you. And I'll catch you next time. Bye.